This is the Saturday Session with Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Well, welcome, welcome to the Saturday session on SENZ. It's me, your host, Grant Elliott, and uh, I'm joined with our producer, normally producer extraordinaire, Ben Francis. We're in the hot seats. It wasn't a train smash last weekend, uh, so they've given us another go to really wreck the show in the first hour. <laughs> um, we made a good fist of it last weekend, and we got a lot of treats coming up for you uh, today. Daniel McCarty obviously doing the football, uh, his true love of the round ball. He's doing the World Cup at the moment, so he's not with us for the first hour. So it's going to just be myself and Ben. And while some of you are enjoying the Saturday session, I'm sure it's a festive season. You'll be having a Friday, Saturday, and maybe even Sunday sesh during this time of the year. Um, I'm sure you will, Ben Francis. Are you sure about that? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the Christmas season, isn't it? There's a lot of those corporate events. I know I went to two this week, and they seem to be really stacking up at the moment. People are winding down here in Wellington. I don't know what it's like up there in Auckland. I'd say it's a little bit more festive in Auckland, wouldn't it be? Well, I don't pay too much attention. For me, Christmas officially starts when the, when the Darts World Champs gets underway. That's when it truly begins for me. Well, that's not, that's not entirely true, though, because we were talking about what's an acceptable time to put your Christmas tree up last weekend, and you were feverishly doing that at 2 a.m. before our yeah, show. Against my will, Grant, that's the difference. Against my will. <laughs> I didn't have a say in the matter. Well, my Christmas tree is going up this weekend, and uh, we do have a magical elf in the house as well called Sprinkles. And if you're a parent... You do have an elf. I feel pain. I do feel your pain out there um, because that elf magically has to do something special every morning, and the kids go and feverishly look for it. Did you have an elf, uh, Ben Francis, back in the day? I didn't. No, I, I definitely did not. It's actually the first I've heard of heard of this. So great little commercial um, uh, initiative that someone started called the elf in the shelf where the elf comes alive in the evening and does certain things in the house so there'll be parents uh, setting up their trees and organizing the elf um, but it's also a great time for cricket uh, and what's coming up on the show uh, today we've we're going to swing both ways and that's our our talking cricket segment with myself and um, ben francis and we'd also like to hear from you the listeners. Um, we'd love to hear questions, uh, anything controversial that you may have during the week, your gripes, and positive. We do like positive stuff. Even though Daniel McCarty's not here, who's normally half empty, and I'm, I try and provide that half full element to the show, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, call up on 0800 150 811 or text us on 8833. We've got um, Ewan McCabe 
at uh, 12 p.m. And we've also got our, uh, who's going to be talking FIFA World Cup. And we've also got our Saturday session legend, which is Shelly Kitchen. We normally have a, our sporting legend during the show. And they provide a lot of insight into their lives, the sport they played, but also what's really become prevalent, uh, Ben, is I definitely think that when we speak to our legends, you hear about how passionate they are about their sport, how passionate they are, but also, you know, that, that was why they stuck to the sport. They've still got it in their blood, uh, no matter how old or young they are. They carry that with them, and it, it really is motivating to listen to the, the Legends chat. Yeah, I totally agree. There's always that common uh, denominator between everyone, and it, it's yeah, and, and they all come back to the same thing how about that passion, about that desire. And me, myself, of course, not being a professional athlete, it's almost like that's that little extra 10% that kind of separates them from the rest. And you're a darts specialist, but you know, I, when I when I was playing cricket, and I'm sure it's the same with you, darts, and those of you that are passionate about your sports. You know, I watched the youngsters going to to their cricket this morning, dropping them off, and feverish to get out there. Some of them not so much, but I had um, I had this this flame inside me, and I don't know what it was, but. I woke up and there was an absolute desire to be the best I could possibly be at cricket. And I can't explain where that came from. I don't know where it came from, but it was it became an obsession, a passion to be the best. Do you have the same with darts? I, I do to an extent, uh, but I, I find it really tricky because for me, uh, especially with darts, for me, dart, the reason why I like darts is because it's such a mental sport. And I don't have that mental edge, and that I think that's what lets me down because I'm continually told by I'll I'll go to my local club or I'll go play around clubs around Auckland, and I'll get told you know you've got a really good throw, you've got really good potential, but it's my I have a mental block which I think is stopping me from kind of reaching that next bit. And I've noticed, especially this year, uh, my my game has gone up, has increased, it's getting better. But I'm still lacking that that just that little mental edge where I kind of truly believe believe that when I when I go play I like to tell myself yeah I'm good you know I have a good chance but for whatever reason it just doesn't happen so it's it's really working on that side of the game uh, for me which would which I would say yeah is is where it's, it, for me it's it's quite broad though when you say mental edge. Because we spoke about the mental edge of the Black Caps, the mental hurdle that they had when they're playing against Australia, which almost, I guess, didn't help them express themselves on the field. But can you put it down? Is it an anxiety? Is it a fear of failure? Um, what exactly is it? Yeah, I, I could easily say it would be a fear of failure. I'm one of these people that absolutely hates losing. Um, I can get in a pretty, <laughs> I can get in a pretty foul mood when when I lose. Uh, you know, I, like lots of people do. But I, I feel like it's probably it's probably down to, you know, you can, with darts, people say you can practice, 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 practice as much as you like. And uh, with my current situation, I can't go out and, and play at my local club much. Like, you know, I've probably been, I would say, maybe five times this year. So then when I do get those opportunities to go, you almost lack that match sharpness. It's kind of like if you were playing cricket and you're in the nets and you're just smashing the ball, smashing the ball, but because you haven't played in a while, you just it's a bit different when you're actually out there doing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, that mental capacity that we have or that mental aptitude that we have, a lot of uh, athletes tend to either live in the past or the future. And they always talk about, you know, taking it ball by ball, living in the moment, living in the present. And if we draw on our past experiences, um, sometimes we can have that fear of failure, which choke us up. Or if we live in the future, um, which is either a, a good future or poor future, we can either have overconfidence or fear of failure. So fascinating to, to hear that. And that, that's what we get from our legends. We do hear about that mental side of the game and we're everything sports on this session. Um, but let's move to our headlines. We've got a few headlines. I mean, the World Cup has been what I've seen an absolute shambles, Ben Francis. It's been some, a lot of upsets. If that's your definition of shambles, but yeah, crikey, there's been <laughs> lots of uh, lots of big results. You know, we've seen throughout this tournament, but uh, there's plenty more this morning as uh, Uruguay were knocked out of the World Cup on goals scored despite beating Ghana two uh, 0 after South Korea's dramatic win against Portugal. Uh, this, they played the final Group H matches today, and Uruguay thought they'd done enough in the first half when they scored a quick double. Uh, they were the first goals Uruguay had actually scored in the group stages, and it proved to be pivotal to their World Cup exit with as with just minutes to play in both games uh, with South Korea, Portugal, Uruguay, Ghana. Uruguay uh, was second in the pool, uh, but a late South Korean winner from He Chan Huang saw them overtake Uruguay in the standings, and essentially they got through. It's like, it was almost like a countback because they got through because they scored more goals, 4-2, to two, during the pool stages. So that's the whole reason why Uruguay missed out, and there were some pretty upset scenes uh, after that match. And they've just had the two games finish now, and uh, Switzerland have beaten Serbia three goals to two. And Cameroon actually beat Brazil uh, 1-0, but it wasn't enough for them to advance to the round of 16. So Brazil and Switzerland are going through for, uh, that was Group G. Uh, also, New Zealand will have another IndyCar driver to cheer on next season with Marcus Armstrong signing with Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, Armstrong will take part in the road and street courses alongside fellow New Zealander Scott Dixon, Marcus Ericsson and Alex Paulo. And the Australian Golf Open is underway on Spark Sport. And a course uh, record equaling second round by Adam Scott has him tied for the lead at the halfway stage. The former world number one is eight under for the championship to be co-leader with the Victorian uh, Daniel Machuzuli with Ryan Fox tied for 22nd. The ISPS Honda Australian Open live December 1-4 to on Spark Sport. Yeah, we haven't had many uh, petrol heads phone in. Um, so if you are a petrol head and you want to um, provide any Formula One, I, uh, Formula Two, sorry, I'm the Formula One specialist uh, at SNZ in the Saturday session. Um, but at the after the break, we would love to hear um, from you either calling or texting in. So at 1508011 or texting on double eight double three. Uh, perhaps in this sad week, um, which we'll, we'll follow up on uh, around Murray Halberg. Um, who is it, someone out there, that you, living or deceased sports person, that maybe you'd love to have dinner with? Um, I've already got a text on my Instagram. Someone said Colin de Grandhome. Um, there, there wouldn't be a lot to speak about with Colin. Um, uh, but what a great man. He is one of, one of the greatest men that I've played with. So after the break, let's hear from you. Time for um, you to phone in and listen to your views. Oh, interesting one. Yeah, yeah. There's been there's been a couple that I've had um, just on my my personal Instagram. Where 
obviously because I can't see the text today because we're out of studio. Daniel McCarty's got the the main studio um, being um, knee deep in football at the moment. I've got Colin de Grandhomme, Trent Bolt, and Sir Peter Blake. Ah. Um, is is some that I've had. I'm not sure those will keep going while we talk, but it was it was truly sad to hear the passing of one of New Zealand's greats this week. Um, New Zealand athletics legend Sir Murray Halberg um, has passed this week at the age of nine, 89. Um, he's one of the country's greatest runners at a time that's probably still regarded as the golden era in New Zealand athletics. For a decade, uh, Sir Murray excelled as a world-class athlete on the international stage, memorably striking 5,000 meters gold at 1960 Rome Olympics. For those of the listeners that can remember that. Um, away from the track, he'll be remembered for his inspirational work in transforming the lives of children with a disability through sport as the founder of the Helberg Foundation, of which I've been involved helping out with that. It truly is a fantastic foundation. Uh, his athletics career began after he seriously injured himself playing rugby and the months of rehabilitation left him with a withered left arm. He was 17 and the disability made him determined athlete, gave him lifelong interest in the needs of crippled children. His talent was nurtured by the great Arthur Lydiard, who um, he was the first great runner to emerge uh, from the Lydiard stable. He came to the national attention in 1954 when he won New Zealand Mile Championship and later that year ran competitively at the Vancouver Empire or Commonwealth Games. In that race, it was a bit part player in the drama of the Bannister Landy four-minute mile. But by 1958, he became a great runner. That year, he became the first New Zealander to break four minutes for the mile, won the gold medal for the three-mile race, Cardiff Commonwealth Games, and was named Sportsman of the Year. He set world records for the two, three-mile and the mile relay, all in 1961, and won another Commonwealth Games gold medal in 62. Halberg set a string of records and won many titles over distances from 800 to 10,000 metres, but his finest moment came when he won the 5,000 metres at the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome. It was a golden double for the New Zealand runners. His Lydiard stablemate, Peter Snell, had shortly before won the 800 metres. He went to the 64 Olympics in Tokyo, but finished down the field in the 10,000 meters, and then turned to coaching. And a lot of his efforts um, were pointed towards Halbergs, and it was then that he created the events, um, which became known as the Halberg Awards in 92. Halberg always said his ultimate goal was for the Halberg Foundation to do itself out of the job. He said, Although we have helped thousands of disabled people over the years, we still have a long way to go before disabled people have the same opportunities to participate in sports and recreation and in society in general. No one ever exemplified the Olympic spirit of triumphing over adversity better than Sir Murray Halberg. May he rest in peace. That was beautiful, Grant. Thank you very much for those uh, touching, touching words on Sir Murray. Uh, he would definitely be a, work, a workhorse of, of, of a lifetime nomination, for sure, not just a workhorse of the week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a time when, you know, a lot of people, I guess, reflect on someone's career, but you, you celebrate it. You celebrate the career. And, you know, we talk about giving back to the game, the community game. And I'm a, a huge fan and advocate of children playing as much sports as possible. 
I think we need to get them out of indoors, out of devices. Uh, the skills that they learn from team sports and even listening to you, Ben, about, you know, the mental aspect of darts, you know, if you can, if you can master those things in sport, well, it's going to help you in the long run in, in life and in any, any job that you do or vocation. Um, the, the soft skills that you learn in sport can be transferred into any workplace. And, you know, Sue Murray being able to, to give to um, disabled children's lives, and I've been involved in the Helberg Games. So that's normally around this time of the year. And uh, normally at King's College where they have the disabled Olympic Games, I guess, for New Zealand. And all these disabled kids, they told me, they said, right, you're going to run cricket. And I'm just letting you know that some, some of them are um, really partially sighted. Some of them are in wheelchairs. Good luck with the session. You're going to have to create a session. And I had to create a cricket session with all these disabilities and cater for the disabilities. Jeez, we, we had a lot of fun. I mean, I was pretty clueless at the start, but you, you kind of you, you get how difficult it could be having a disability and then trying to play sports in schools where there's just only one format of the game. But, you know, doing catches with someone in a wheelchair, that was interesting. And it was actually brilliant because these kids, they have got a no fear um, of failure, zero fear of failure. They just want to try everything. And they want to, or they've almost got, a, they want to prove to people that they can do anything that a, um, a fully abled person could do. And I had the one kid I was throwing high catches and he was in a wheelchair and he dived out of the wheelchair and he was on the ground. And I was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? And he's smiling and he was just leopard crawling back to the wheelchair. I offered it to help and he was like, no, I'm fine. Straight back in the wheelchair, wanted another catch. So, um, you know, what, what Sir Murray has done for uh, people with disabilities in um, Helberg Games is, is truly fantastic for um, New Zealand and long may it continue. Yeah, some more great words there, Grant. Uh, when you're talking about the, the wheelchair, just last month while they had the Rugby League World Cup on, they also had the, the wheelchair Rugby League World Cup on as well. And it was absolutely incredible seeing some of the things that some of these people were doing uh, in, in wheelchairs. I don't think I got a lot of coverage here because I don't think New Zealand had a team over. Uh, but it, you know, some of the some of the tries that they were scoring, uh, they were better than the tries actually scored in, in the men's and the women's rugby league World Cup. And also quite interesting hearing you talk about trying to set up programs. Uh, quite a few years ago, I used to live in the in the mighty north in the mighty Northland, and I spent a bit of time in, in Dargaville and. Uh, one day at the football club there, they kind of hosted uh, like a special Olympic football day, and they had quite a few teams around from the from the area come in, and it was really cool seeing uh, those people come in, come together and, and and giving it a go. And it was it was really cool to be part of, and they put together a, a team for, from the football club to to play along as well. And uh, we we played. I, I was part of the team, and in the first game we played, we we beat this team. I don't want to say handsomely because you don't. You know, don't want to say that, but to see they ended up playing us in the final again, and to see how they bounce back, I think I think it was only one nil. It was only only one goal, and this was like a thirty minute game, uh, and just to see like their determination, their effort, and it's it's fantastic, you know. Yeah, we spoke we've spoken about that. I think as a New Zealand fan, that's all you want to see. You just want to see the athletes giving their best, like showing that that enthusiasm but showing that they they're prepared to give 
everything they've possibly got. And win or lose, I think that that's always inspirational. And you saw from the the way that they played the game with enthusiasm and authenticity and um, and passion. I think that, that that's what captivates the New Zealand fan. However, in this world of professionalism, I think sports people, um, and I've had that feeling when I've played sports, is you almost want to try and protect yourself from the public because you, there is scrutiny and there is a lot of people out there to um, not ridicule but pull you down at times. So, you know, the, our athletes tend to, to not be as authentic as we want them to be. But I think that, that if we can find that in New Zealand, that's how I'd want our children to grow up, watching professional sports and um, having sports people just express themselves. And speaking of that, I mean, who, who is it that you would want to have dinner with, uh, Ben Francis? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I've, I've always got the same answer for this one. And it's, a, it's an athlete, but it's not necessarily for the achievements that they made on the court. It's more to... It's more about the person off the court, and it's kind of someone that you aspire to be like. And and when I was growing up, that was always Dwayne Wade, uh, who used to play for the Miami Heat. Uh, there was I know there was always a lot made about his uh, some of his uh, off the court stuff, but he was a very, he was a very family uh, focused and family orientated uh, man. Uh, and I I always thought if I am like a father, that's how that's how I want to be. I I want to be the best I can be. Uh, away away from the workplace or whatever it was so that was always my inspiration as I say not for what he was doing on the court on the court what he what he was doing was absolutely incredible but it was more for the stuff off the court as well yeah uh, well I have had some more texts um I've had uh anyone but Grant Elliott <laughs> um uh, that was from our producer from Spark Sports so thank you very much for that Rob um, <laughs> uh, I've also had Tim Southey, Martin Crow would be a good one. Mm. Martin Crow, who I was very fortunate to spend time with him. He was my test batting coach. <laughs> I think I was a failed, uh, <laughs> a failed mentee there. Oh no! Um, for a while, I wanted to score ten test hundreds then, and I averaged ten, so that didn't quite work out for me. Um, someone that I, I was thinking about, if I could have dinner with, and I didn't know too much about him, and I've mentioned him on this show before, and that's Keith Miller. Do you know who Keith Miller was, Ben? Keith Miller? I do not know who Keith Miller is. Keith Miller was an Australian all-rounder. He was absolutely, apparently amazing. And, you know, I, I really had a lot of respect for my all-rounder. He averaged 40 with and 22 with the ball. He played under Bradman for the Invincibles. He told Bradman to go and F himself one day when he left a straight one versus Essex in 1940. Because the, those of you who don't know, leaving a straight one is just being straightened. So he obviously bought He bowled the speed of light with Ray Lindwell at the other end. He batted at five. He dated Princess Margaret, ran a record. His four sons by his bed. Now, and he sounds like a great man. Someone spoke to him about pressure, and he said, "That's you know, there's no pressure in sports. Pressure is 
um, you know, a plane trying to shoot you down um, in World War Two. So that was that would be my person to have dinner with. Um, and if you've got anyone interesting that you can think of, deceased or living, text it in double eight double three or phone in 0800-150-811. When we come back from the break, we've got our summer cricket segment with PTG Rights and Turf, swinging both ways. 27 minutes away from 11 here. You're on the Saturday session. Ben Francis filling in for Daniel McCarty to 11 o'clock. And as always, Grant Elliott alongside me. Uh, now it's time for Swinging Both Ways, thanks to PG Wrightson. PG Wrightson Turf, key suppliers to New Zealand cricket grounds. And Grant, we're starting off very simple. What about those white ferns, eh? Oh, if you had the uh, joy of watching that, I mean... If there was ever a dominant performance, well, that was it. New Zealand batted first, and it was an absolute uh, spectacle. Uh, obviously, playing against Bangladesh, they're weak. We know they're weak, but I think the White Ferns have got a lot to, a lot of points to prove, um, especially with the batting order and the way that they structure their batting order. Sophie Devine opened with Susie Bates. I guess that was the, probably the only thing on the night that didn't go well is that no one went on and scored a big one. Uh, Sophie Devine, 45, Susie Bates, 41, opening partnership of 84, and then Amelia Kerr, Maddie Green, and Leah Tahu finished the innings off to get 164 for three. They spoke about you know the coach saying that he wanted over 160. Well, they got that. And uh, Bangladesh uh, were put in, and... They batted 14 and a half overs, but unfortunately, they could only manage 32 runs. And um, the plaudits there went to Leah Tahu, who got four wickets, uh, bowled magnificently. But I thought Hayley Jensen may have even been pick of the bowlers. A lot of movement through the air. She got three wickets. Fran Jonas, the young uh, left-arm tweaker, uh, two wickets for her. But um, you'd have to say four for six or four overs for Leah Tahuhu and had a, dr- a catch dropped by Maddie Green, who was a replacement keeper for a five-wicket haul. It was an absolute clanger. Um, but she, was, she would be disappointed with not getting five, but ecstatic that in front of her home crowd, she got four for six or four overs. And even more fascinating that she's obviously been left off the contract list at the start of the season. So uh, really nice to see her back in form. And I think... Just watch the White Ferns. Um, I will be commentating some of those games, but watch the the, the difference in um, batting orders and see if they that the structure that they use and combinations that they use because I think that that's where they've fallen over in the past. And uh, just some quick news out of the White Ferns. Uh, White Ferns batter Brooke Halliday has been ruled out of the remainder of the Bangladesh series with a hand injury, and they have called in. Uh, Rebecca Burns uh, for the remaining two T20s uh, in that squad. Uh, and moving on now, Grant, uh, Black Caps heading to Pakistan uh, later on this month. And at the moment, Pakistan are playing England. And uh, I, it's safe to say it's just holy hecka. England, 657 all out. Uh, they had one, two, three, four players with centuries, and they scored those 657 runs and 101 overs. Pakistan at the end of day two, 181 without loss. This is just a run fest. <laughs> it's an absolute run fest. The lowest uh, strike rate for England um, with anyone that faced over 40 balls was 74, and that was Joe Root. He was the only one in the top five to miss out. Joe Root got 23. It went 
Crawley, 122 off 111. Ben Duckett, 107 off 110. Ollie Pope, 108 off 104. And then Joe Root missed out. He got 23. And then Harry Brook came in and got 153 off 116. He also managed to hit uh, one of the spinners for six fours in a row. So all records were broken on their first day. And what was even um, more amazing about that is that they didn't even bat their full 90 overs. They were cut short by 15 overs uh, because of uh, uh, light, bad light stop play. So 500 plus runs on the opening day. And this is the, these are all firsts, the first time in test history. And it was the first day in Rawalpindi. So 500 runs were scored in an opening day, and there were 15 overs short. Four batters scored 100 on the opening day. Three batters scored 100 off less than 100 balls in the same innings. One of the England batters, which was Harry Brook, had six fours off an over. And an England keeper batter scored 100 off less than 100 balls, which was Ollie Pope. So uh, huge uh, records broken. And obviously uh, all due to the fact that we've got a Kiwi coaching the team. Brendan McCallum. Yeah, a bit of, bit of baseball going on. And this is something that we were going to discuss anyway, but Steve from Tauranga has uh, texted her, and this could be in a bit of a similar relation as well to New Zealand rugby with lots of people saying that why do we let our best coaches go overseas instead of keeping them here? Uh, Steve has made uh, one point about Baz and Stokes changing test cricket, but we just want to focus on the second part where he says, are New Zealand losing their top coaches in cricket to other countries too much? With McCullum, Patel with England, we have Daniel Vittori with the Aussie team at the moment. Uh, I think you mentioned a couple of others as well whose names just elude me, but uh, what is the deal with keeping our coaches here? Yeah, it's a good question from Stephen Toronga. Um, you know... I look at our coaches and just off the top of my head, you know, you've got Brendan McCullum who's coaching England and you've got Jeetan Patel who's uh, the spin bowling coach for England. Then Daniel Vittori, who I believe is the assistant coach in Australia. Uh, Stephen Fleming, IPL. Mike Hessen, Royal Challengers Bangalore, uh, director of coaching. Uh, James Franklin, I know, is in the T10. Um, the pathway in New Zealand, you've only got six major associations. And of those six major associations, there's six top jobs, top coaching jobs. Assistant coaching job, I'd say, probably um, it, it is getting up there in terms of pay. But let's say that leaves 12 genuine coaching opportunities in, in New Zealand. So I guess a lot of them are looking overseas. But I think what we need to do is we need to have a look at um, it's difficult to find a coach to commit for the whole year. Uh, even Brendan McCullum, he's a test batting coach, mm. but is given, you know, uh, salary times five um, compared to the coaches we have here. I think the only way that you can attract really good coaches in this day and age is by splitting the coaching. Um, and, and what I mean is by splitting that according to formats. So you've got your test batting coaching uh, team, and then you've, uh, which allows them to then potentially go and do some of the T20s around the world if they want to. And then you've got your one days and your T20s, and maybe that can be a mixture. I think the one constant that you need is probably your director of coaching, uh, and that's someone that needs to almost be your, um, your head coach or your manager, your football manager in a way. Um, and then below that, you have a head coach for each format. That way you might be able to um, not only get to a salary that is attractive for someone, but also they're not stopping their whole life to coach international cricket 
which is generally what happens. These coaches, they're in it for three years and they're traveling the world when they can do a T20 team um, and get paid probably twice as much for um, a quarter of the time during the year. So very difficult to keep our coaches here, but how can we get those coaches involved um, in the different formats? And you look at Fleming, uh, Vittori, uh, Brendan McCullum and Mike Hesson, they've all got experience in T20 cricket. How can we get that intellectual property into our T20 team who we know we do well, we're like top four team, but we're not the best in the world. Uh, you look at that England team, what are they doing that is making them exceptional at the moment? Uh, not only in their pathways, but maybe in the coaching side of it. So, um, yeah, good question from Steve there. Very interesting about all the coaches. And uh, as we touched on before, of course, the Black Caps heading to Pakistan later this month. Lots has been made about the pitch that they're playing on and whether that's going to be a similar pitch to what the Black Caps could be facing as well. But then it also comes down to, I believe, the cricket balls, because they're using is it, they're using different kind of cricket balls here. They're using the kookaburra uh, cricket balls, which can be a little bit different to the, some of the other ones that they use. Yeah, no, you absolutely nailed it. So um, it's not only the pitch, but it's more the, the ball that they're using as well. So when you use the kookaburra cricket ball, it's a softer ball. It's not as pronounced with the seam. And sometimes you'll hear the commentators talk about the difference between the duke and the kookaburra. In England, they use the duke because the conditions are sometimes a little bit more moist. So because it's a little bit damper, um, the, it's, the ball has a lacquer on it. So the leather's a little bit harder. The seam is more pronounced which means that when someone like Jeetan Patel, when he came to New Zealand, he didn't spin the ball as much on New Zealand wickets, but went to England and he had the Duke ball, pronounced seam, softer sort of conditions, and used to rip it up. He was one of the um, Wisdom's top uh, cricketers of the decade because of that and got so many wickets in England. But it also swings through the air a lot. So I'm surprised they're using the kookaburra because I know that when they did use a kookaburra at one stage, and this is going back a long time ago. This is going back in the 2000, 2001. They trialed the kookaburra in Pakistan. And there was a batter who made the test team called Wajahatula Wasti. And I know that because I played against him in Ireland. I was in the leagues in Ireland. And Wajahatula Wasti got nine hundreds in a row. Whew. And they were just pumping out hundreds, the, the Pakistan batters, because they were using the kookaburra ball. What the kookaburra ball does do is it reverse swings. So they'll be looking for reverse swing early on. I turned on the TV last night and uh, Leach was bowling already. So the fact that he was bowling, it was a second over, it tells you a lot about how they think the pace bowlers are going to be going. Uh, I think they'll be doing a lot of the graveyard shift um, in, in Pakistan. And New Zealand need to look at that and go, right, okay, well, how can we balance our team now? Because they do need to, to send out a balanced team. You think about our spinners. Ajaz Patel is one of them. Who's the other spinner that we're going to take? We will need two spinners. Or is it an all-rounding uh, all rounder spinner? We played Michael Bracewell in England. So it'd be very interesting to see the makeup of the team. And also maybe Pakistan, who are new to Test Match cricket ever since, um, obviously, uh, teams have started touring there again. So interesting to see how they change that pitch because no one wants to watch Test cricket like this. So it might end up being an interesting game. Who knows? But at the moment, you've got Pakistan who are 
181 uh, without loss. And Abdullah Shafiq and Imam Al-Haq are there both on 89 and 90 respectively. So not going as quick um, as the England batters were. But um, yeah, you'd look at that and you go, wow, okay. Well, there was um, more than 800 runs in two days and they were cut short probably by about 30 overs in the second day due to bad light. I did hear uh, from a very reliable source that Ish Shodi is uh, working pretty hard to get back in that test team as well. Uh, sounds like he's pretty confident and it sounds like there could be an outside chance for him as well uh, with how things yeah, are. I'd be su- yeah, I was surprised if he doesn't go. Todd Astle doesn't play four-day cricket anymore. Um, you do have uh, the other interesting one that actually comes to mind is uh, Rippon yep. from, um, from Otago sending over a left-arm Chinaman. I don't know what his red ball stats are like. I could search for those feverishly in the break. But, um, you know, just sending a spinner who's actually got because a left-arm spinner, left-arm ortho, which you need to right-hand batters, but then the left-arm wrist spinner, between him and Sodi might be a very interesting choice or a great opportunity for us to grow a spinner over there in subcontinent conditions. I mean, I've, I've played in Pakistan and... Gee, the, the pitches can be dead, but they can also be quite lively. So I'd say the curator will be under a little bit of pressure putting some nice green grass on it when we head over there. Uh, that's all we've got time for with uh, swinging both ways. And believe me, there's plenty more cricket we could have spoken about, but we can save some of these topics for another week. Uh, swinging both ways brought to you by PGD Rights and Turf. PGD Rights and Turf, premium suppliers of turf and seed and maintenance products to cricket grounds across New Zealand. Keep those texts coming through on double eight double three on who you would love to have a meal with. It could be someone dead or alive. Uh, this is paying our respects to Sir Murray Halberg, who passed away uh, sadly a couple of days ago. But coming up after the break, 13 minutes away from 11 o'clock, it is time for the Ocho. Nine minutes away from 11 here on the Saturday session. Ben Francis and Grant Elliott with you through to 11 o'clock. And then I'll be uh, stepping aside when Daniel McCarty will be uh, taking over. He's just finished calling uh, some of the FIFA World Cup. But it is time for the Ocho. And we're going to start off with uh, Grant Elliott. Uh, see what he has to say. Well, Ronnie O'Sullivan saw a snooker record taken away from him in just 30 minutes after a commentator had announced his achievement. The rocket rattled in a magnificent quickfire century in a frame two of a 4-0 whitewash win over China's Bai Langing as, at the Scottish Open. Bungling Eurosport commentator Neil Fultz called the century live at 3 minutes and 24 seconds after O'Sullivan sank the final yellow to take the break to 100 and counting. However, within 30 minutes, the truth emerged that the initial call was incorrect. And the break was timed at 3 minutes and 34 seconds. Three seconds outside his previous best. Or the previous best. It's a bit unfair, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. um, I mean, do they have someone timing it? uh, Must have. Yeah, I didn't even even realise they had someone there. They'd have to go back to the video, wouldn't they? Yeah. So obviously the commentator's gone, oh, it's brilliant. He's, he's out by 10 seconds. So wherever that 10 seconds gone, I mean, is he timing it? Normally what happens when you're commentating, you have someone feed the information to you and they've said, that's a world record, which is what happened with us um, in, in Tauranga. One of the, our statisticians, he said, that's it. We're, we're the world champions now. 
but they only assess your world championship points in uh, cricket after the series is finished and we still had a game to go. Oh. So at that point, said, remember this day, the 1st of January 2021 or two, whenever it was, um, New Zealand are world champions. And in, as soon as he said that, the um, statistician said, I think I may have messed that up. <laughs> so it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of world records, as you know, on the Ocho, we love talking about some world records. And the Guinness World Records actually released a montage of some of the most crazy and wacky records that were smashed in the month of November. Some of these records include the most claps in a minute, which is 1,140, the most walnuts smashed in a minute, 303, the longest duration of juggling three objects while, uh, like, uh, sur- surfing, you know, when you're on the back of a boat. Uh, wake surfing, I think that's called. 19 minutes and 17 seconds. And probably one of my favourites was uh, the longest throw and catch of a hot dog in a bun, which was 51 metres. Oh, my word. That, that's, a, that's an amazing distance to throw a hot dog. It is. But there was one grant... And I saw it, and I was like, we are going to get Grant Elliott to do this before the end of the year. We have to get Grant to do this because it's cricket-related. Well, it's kind of cricket-related. Well, and, we've got a whole list of things you want me to do. Yeah, well, we do, but we can, we, we'll touch on those after 11, I think. But this world record, and I want to add this to your list because I think it's something that we could definitely attempt live on air, and that is the world record was broken for the fastest time to type the alphabet wearing cricket gloves, and that was 8.56 seconds. Eight, less than nine seconds. Well, I'd love to know the device that he was typing on. It was we a, need to find out what sort a, of device. It was a computer. There was, was video, there was a video of him doing it. Okay, well, you know, I'll be up for that challenge. I can bring my cricket gloves in. Uh, I mean, that's one heck of a world record. I don't think I can break it, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, I will look forward to it, Grant. That can be something we do for next week. It is five minutes away from 11 here on the Saturday session. Coming up after the break, the return of Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott. Hello, folks. How you all doing? I'm Daniel. He's Grant. He's back. Well, no, you were out there. I was always here. Yeah, but, I mean, you're back on the Saturday sesh. This should be reinvigorating for you. I'm feeling a little bit flat, Grant. How flat? I'm like, flat as a roll pindi test wicket, uh, wicket. The roll pindi. No wonder Shabak died to buy 160 k's an hour. Where they, what, like, um, you know, do they get that from Bunnings? Like, and then, then just roll it out? Yeah, I don't know, because I think I, I, we were chatting about it. Ben Francis asked some great questions on swinging both ways. And one of them well, was... Well done, a, Ben. Yeah, one of them was around the um, cricket ball and around the difference of uh, the Kookaburra and the Duke ball. And I said, well, I remember in 2000, 2001, there was a player called Wajahatula Wasti. Could you say that again? Wajahatula Wasti. How do you spell that? W-A-J-A-A-T-U-L-L-A-A-H. How quickly could you type that? Probably in under 10 seconds. Yeah, you've just done the alphabet under 10 seconds. (laughs) Anyway. So he scored 900s in a row because they were using the Kookaburra ball. They trialed the Kookaburra ball in Pakistan. And clearly the Kookaburra ball on those pitches is not a good idea. Not a a match made in heaven. When you turn on your TV and you see Leach bowling the second over and then you turn your TV back on and Joe Root is bowling the 20th over and bowls a bouncer first ball as an off-spinner. You know you're clutching at straws to try to get wickets. So 
Yeah, they um, they really did struggle, the bowlers. I know that England, I mean, they play a entertaining brand, but clearly it is the sort of pitch that you can probably play that entertaining brand. Uh, that, to, to the New Zealand batsmen listening, unfortunately you're playing in Karachi in the first test, mm. and Multan, I think, in the second. Yeah, well, Karachi actually can do a little bit when I was yeah, there. Yeah. But what I wanted to ask you... You're not getting, you're not getting 700. I'm not, and, and how many overs? 90 or something? That was just... My goodness yeah. gracious me! It's just not cricket, man. Let's see how let's see how well you know your cricket, Daniel. Yep. How many balls do you think were left by the England batters in the first innings? Thirteen. Yes, you've done your math. It was it thirteen exactly? That is the best guess of the year. <laughs> that was an utter guess. Was it? Yeah. Amazing guess. Complete guess. So they they have been striking. Um, at 69% of deliveries. Wow. When you look at Crickvis. Now, to put context into that. Pakistan were bowling wicket to wicket. They bowl wicket to wicket. Yeah. You have to. Have to. But to put context into that, the striking um, percentage of scoring shots in one-day cricket and T20s, one-days was 49%, and T20s for England was 64%. So they're striking at more balls um, in test cricket. Well, in this Royal Pindi test than they have been in T20 cricket. Incredible stuff. That, that is great train spotting. Mm. You, you've given me a bit of life. <laughs> Unlike the uh, the poor bowlers suffering in that test. Uh, the West Indies bowlers suffered against Australia, but uh, the Australian bowlers, after suffering early, uh, found a way to pick up uh, 10 wickets. They were in the box set of their test match. Uh, we'll continue to talk about that as uh, things roll on. It's almost four minutes after 11. Top of the hour means uh, let's update you with the very latest in sports headlines. And let's start off with uh, the FIFA World Cup. We are the home of the FIFA World Cup, of course, Grant. Uh, every game live, make sure we get the SCNZ app. We are now down to 16 teams. Yes, uh, we officially have a round of 16 booked. Uh, earlier today, it was South Korea who reached the knockout stage for just the second time after, after a stoppage time uh, goal. Yes, it had to be an injury time. The last few days, Grant, have just been absolutely bonkers. Uh, they beat Portugal by two goals to one to finish ahead of Uruguay uh, for most goals scored. Yes, the countback was decided on uh, most goals scored. Uh, yeah, incredible stuff. <laughs> uh, meantime, uh, Brazil have finished top of their group despite losing to Cameroon. So they've lost to Cameroon by one goal to nil. Brazil still finished top. Uh, and it was uh, Switzerland who beat Serbia in a wild game, three goals to two. Serbia go out. Switzerland go through to take on Portugal in the round of 16. Brazil will take on the Korean Republic. Uh, so well done to uh, the Korean Republic. And, uh, well, Portugal had already picked. That's why you flat. It's because the World Cup has been such a, a, a group of upsets and emotional distraught for a lot of fans, hasn't it? Yeah. No, one's, no one can predict a game at the moment. Harder to pick than a broken nose, Grant. It really <laughs> has been. It's been a, a joy to, to be involved in. Uh, David Choke Nye's um, involvement has finished, so that's a good thing. We can sleep and not dream about football and not do hours of prep and try to learn names like that. So, say that name for me, Grant. See if you can say this name. Uh, okay, I'm going to give it a good, straight away. Yeah. Inga Pandor and BC. Okay. Um, and go, Inga Pandor and BC. Who is he from? He's from Cameroon. Simon Inga Pandor and BC. Oh. Yeah, I can't even say it, and I've been trying it all week. Anyway, let's carry on with some headlines, and the Black Sox are now likely to finish eighth. Ouch! At the Men's Softball World Cup after losing 7-4 to Japan last evening. 
it was uh, our nation's side losing their fourth game in seven at the Auckland-based tournament. The Black Sox final game is against Denmark uh, today. Please, Denmark, be nice. <laughs> be nice. Come on, Denmark. I know Australia knocked you out of the uh, uh, the Football World Cup, but be nice. Uh, and Silverfern's defender Katrina Rory has confirmed uh, her retirement from international netball with more than 100 tests in the black dress. Uh, taking to Instagram, uh, you say the former Silverfern's captain, now 35, announced her decision to leave the international arena behind, putting her young family first. I think she's now juggling number two. What a yep. great servant. Absolute great character, great person. We know her well. Yeah, no, that, that's sad. I, I mean, she's given a lot to that sport. And th- she's had a lot of ups and downs as well. Um, when I look at, you know, the career I had, having all those ups and downs, she had quite a similar career. Um, she had extreme highs where she was captain at one stage, wasn't she? Yeah, extreme lows as captain. Everyone yeah. remember the silver uh, ferns at the Commonwealth Games. And mm. distraught she was, you know, having to front the media after they... um. Sort of fell flat on their face. But she gave everything to that sport. I used to um, share a uh, squat rack machine with her at the ASB Kilburnie. And Let me guess, you put you to shame? I'm pretty sure that... Fairly uh, powerful individual. Well, we used to joke about it, but yeah. she, I said, was there enough weights for her in the room? Because she gee, she was a machine in the gym, and she her body was a temple. She gave a lot to that sport and deserves a lot back from it now. Yeah, so we wish her all the very, very best. Um, who first played for New Zealand as a 21-year-old and has played 137 times for her country and was part of the side that won the 2019 Netball World Cup in England. Uh, enjoy retirement. Um, we'll probably have to pester her in the weeks to come, maybe. Yeah, she'd be great. She, she reeks of a legend. She reeks of a legend. Uh, speaking of uh, sporting legends, our um, sporting legend, um, we're going to talk some squash. Do you play squash? No. I'd imagine you'd play squash. No, not with my calves. Bit of a lithe individual, hit the ball hard. Do you know what I found difficult? Was well, being in a closed confined Being confined, in a box. And like, like every Saturday we are, we're putting the yeah. tiny box together. But thinking about the rebound, because with cricket I always just ran after the ball. I didn't expect it to rebound off a wall back again. So, yeah, I... I struggled with that concept. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, squash with our Saturday session legend in association with Somerset. Think legendary here. Think Somerset retirement. Villagers. Shelley Kitchen's going to join the program. Who won a whole swag of medals uh, throughout her career. A professional for a long, long time. I think Kaitaias, where she uh, you know, learnt the sport at a very, very young age. I uh, was a national age group champion, I think, from under-13s onward. So it's always sort of destined. Yeah, ben, ben Francis and I were talking about how if you haven't listened to our Legend segment, you should always tune in because just the passion that you can hear in the voice of our Legends and just how they've got this constant fire burning for the sport. And I'm sure that Shelley Kitchen will be no different. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, life lessons, as well as uh, lessons of you know just how passionate you have to be at not just only sports but in life to succeed. I've got a question for the audience. Double eight, double three, probably the best way because we're going to have Shelley on in about five or so minutes. And uh, now that we've got sixteen contenders still alive in this football World Cup, we have just seen a group phase where no one has won all their games. Mm. Brazil lost to Cameroon. Crazy. It has been crazy. Uh, if you are to name just one, just one, one team, you are utterly certain, a thousand percent certain. Even though we know that's physically impossible. That will make the football World Cup final. Who is it? Let us know. Double eight, double three. One. T- I'm not even asking for two. 
Just one. And if you can explain why, give me a reason or two. It might be Brazil because Neymar will be back, for example. Double eight, double three. Send your messages through. We'd love to, you know, run a little bit of an unscientific straw poll. It's coming home. Really? <laughs> I would love to see England win Mate, it. I think just because I would love to see them in Qatar. I'd love to see them celebrate in Qatar because the number of paddy wagons that have to line up to, to roll them into after There's not a enough victory. booze in Qatar to get those guys drunk. <laughs> There's not enough there? prisons. No. But that, that, I actually think people are putting a line through England way too early. I, I've got England making a deep run. Really? I could see them. Absolutely. Spain? I put Spain the quarter in. quarterfinal looks their tricky match. I think they'll get past Senegal. They'll probably play France. Mm. Get through that. Could easily make it to a final. But anyway, that's that's my uh, take. I'd like to know from the ever-knowing Saturday session uh, listener on double eight double three. Just one team and why? Why you're confident in this uh, tournament of twists and turns of wild rides? Uh, who will make it through to the final on December nineteenth? Now you've seen every side play three times. We will talk some uh, football World Cup with the World Cup baby himself. Yes, author uh, and World Cup super fan, Mister Ewan McCabe, who's watched every single World Cup game, Grant since 1994. He takes annual leave to watch. Um, I don't think there is a stronger authority on all things Football World Cup. Um, he's also watched more terrible Wellington Firebirds performances than probably <laughs> anyone else because he's always perched up in the R.A. Vance stand too <laughs> with his mate. I call him the Waldorf and Stadler of uh, Wellington Cricket, but he's a, a, a fine footballing mind. I can't wait to catch up with him in about an hour's time to talk that. Uh, a reminder, the Cancer Society Longest Day Golf Challenge is on now. Register at longestday.org.nz. Get your text coming through. Who's the World Cup finalist? It's, it's a pretty simple question. Double eight, double three. Let us know. Love to get your contribution. But coming up after the break, it is time for our Saturday session legend. We talk squash with the great Shelly Kitchen. Stay with us. Back after this break. 16 after 11 o'clock. This is the Saturday session. Double eight, double three. Your text. The question uh, this hour. Uh, now that we've got 16 teams through to the round of 16 at uh, the FIFA World Cup, for which SCNZ is your home of, you can listen to every single game via the SCNZ app. Uh, get it. Uh, don't be disappointed. You won't be. Uh, we want to know one, just one, one half of the equation. Who makes it through to the final on the 19th of December? Spain. Spain? Well, I put, I, I mean, got Spain. The team that at, lost to Japan yesterday. Yeah, I got Spain at $9, I think. Right, so you're saying Last Spain. Yeah. So, so you'll be to Spain. Right. So you walked away from England. Well, no, I'd, I'd, them up. I'd love to see England just because of the shambles that would ensue in Qatar. I think that what, Qatar would never have seen scenes like that. Right, okay, so, so basically you're inviting mayhem in the Middle East. <laughs> well, I saw... Yeah, basically. I saw an English fan with um, the locals and he was like, it's coming home, and he was singing, it's coming home. And then he, then he started like um, almost a military chant of free Palestine, and they were wow. all behind him. Wow. And quite a uh, tangent. Yeah. And he just kept going. And I was like, wow, these guys, the English fans, how yeah. are they surviving over there? Well, it's probably hot for them. they pasty <laughs> white figures. Double eight, double three. Just one team you're confident will make it through to the final when all is said and done. Right now, though, it is time for our Saturday session legend segment. As uh, we uh, are delighted every Saturday to be joined by a fine New Zealand athlete, player, coach, team. Talk about careers, moments in sport that are legendary. We're going to uh, go under the hood of squash, which Grant and I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, we, we have a fear of confined spaces anyway, um, and generally they have to crowbar us not out. 
they have to push us in, push us into our little cupboard in our Wellington studio in Petone. Uh, this is all in association with Somerset, think legendary Keith and Somerset Retirement Villages. Shelley Kitchen has racked up uh, quite a few milestones in her career. Let's start off with the, I always get these wrong, don't laugh at me. Shelley Kitchen, MNZM. Did I get that right? Of course, yeah. um, order of merit, order of merit. But uh, world champion uh, in double squash, Commonwealth Games medalist, world team championship medalist as well, just to name a few. And she's dropped by on the program like this Saturday. Shelley, thanks so much for joining us. Do we find you in fine form? Good morning, Shelley. Morning, morning. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Where are you at the moment? I am in Auckland at the moment. Um, nice. Weekend, so, um, oh, yeah, the, the, so the, now I'm in trade for the weekend. For the weekend, what? Uh, what down to party? Anything exciting lined up for the weekend? Grant and I don't have a life anymore, so we live vicariously through others. Um, yeah, my daughter had her school ball last night and prize giving, and she dances as well. So, um, yeah, yeah. So lots going on. We moved to Whangarei, um about four weeks ago from Auckland, so still sort of trying to disconnect at the moment from Auckland, which is quite hard, especially at this time of year. But, um, yeah, so slowly sort of moving back home on my way back up, up north to Kaitaia. So, Shelley, were there some stern words with your daughter's date as to what time she was to be home and um, the exact rules of engagement? <laughs> well, she's 10. <laughs> so, um, so she had a yes at the primary school slash intermediate school ball. So um, yeah, I picked her up at eight thirty, but um, yeah, she had a had a great eight thirty. Oh, okay. 8.30, that's late. It's a bit late. This is a it? true story. My mother used to make me go to bed at 8.30 when I was 16 years of age. <laughs> that's brilliant. Is, <laughs> may God rest her soul, you know? Is that why you enjoy commentating up at the early hours? Yeah, you can't wait like to that. do a T20 it, till 3 a.m. Yeah, something like that. So you're going back to where it all began, of course. So, uh, you know, proudly from uh, Tito Tokoro, of course. Um, that's where it all started. But how young did you pick up a squash racket in anger? Um, I probably started playing squash when I was about two years old, so just sort of um, wow. my mum played and my sister played as well and it was really a uh, really strong sport in Kaitaia um, many years ago, like really strong club. We had lots of sort of New Zealand representatives. Um, yeah, it was just quite a popular thing to do in Kaitaia. My mum was the club captain, so she ran, ran all the tournaments. Um, but I think I probably first started sort of just hitting the, hitting the ball against our carport. Um, in the early mornings, <laughs> so I yeah, probably didn't really sort of yeah the neighbours probably didn't really weren't really impressed with that. But um, yeah, I definitely started yeah when I was very young. Shelley, uh, uh, we, I was talking with our producer Ben Francis earlier, and we were talking about um, he loves his darts, passionate about darts. I was obviously passionate about cricket. And when you talk about hitting the ball against you know the carports early morning, I was always up. I had the ball on a string, and I used to you know be able to hit this cricket ball in a string and it would come back to me. So I didn't need anyone to throw to me. And I, I would do this for hours. I'm sure I drove my parents and neighbors crazy about it. But what we spoke about was that passion inside you, that you, this fire, you don't know where it comes from. You can't explain it, but you wake up every morning and you, you, all you think about is how can I be the best I can possibly be at that sport? Is that something that you had from a young age? And can you remember the age that I guess you recognise that that passion for wanting to be the best squash player you could possibly be. Yeah, I think so. I think when I first started playing, I just loved yeah hitting a ball. 
and it was squash because that's where my family sort of hung out a lot. And then um, my sister played as well. So I think I think I really got the bug and wanted to sort of be the world champion, I guess, when I was about 14 years old. But up until then, um, we couldn't actually play any tournaments until, 10, until we were 10 years old at my squash club, which is probably quite good because if I played any earlier, I possibly could have sort of burnt out and, and not played, you know, for as long as I did. So um, waiting until we were 10 was, was actually a really good move for me. Um, got, got wasted, really, when I first started, started playing New Zealand junior tournaments um, and any national events right up until I was sort of 13, 14. So... Um, but yeah, probably when I was about 14, 15, I decided I want to sort of, yeah, go as far as I could and play in squash. It was just a, a big dream for me, really, never really thinking I would sort of get close. Um, and saying that I wasn't close to either being world champion in singles, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, being on the tour was, yeah, it was fun. Met lots of people, go to some amazing places. Um, but yeah, and, and sort of have lifelong friends, friends, I think that's probably, um, yeah, the most I got out from out of playing squash. Yeah, but you, you won a whole heap through those teenage, teenage years once you did start competing. And, I, and I'm just reading uh, the list here, uh, Squash NZ, their website provide career highlights. New Zealand under-13 champ, under-15 champ, under-17 champ, even won the Australian under-17 champ. Uh, New Zealand <laughs> under-19 twice, <laughs> under-21 three times. Man, there w- would have been All a right. whole heap of expectation <laughs> on you a- as a teenager. How did you cope with that? Was it, you know... You loved it, you just loved competing, you loved winning, or was there a bit of pressure on you at that stage that, you know, squash could become something for you professionally? Yeah, I, I never really felt the pressure when I was sort of in my teenage years, and I don't know why. I think, um, you know, I just played because I just love playing, and, you know, I love meeting lots of people, I love the travelling, I love training, and I love just playing squash. So I didn't really feel the pressure. You know, if I lost a few times, that was that was okay. My parents never put any pressure on me at all and always supported me. Um, we had a really good club in Kaitaia. And we had, like I said before, we had junior representatives before me. Um, and then our team, our New Zealand under-19 team, the three of us were from Kaitaia. And then we came runners-up to England in 1997 in Brazil. Um, so, yeah, we just had, yeah, lots of support up there all went away together to tournaments and yeah, it was just really fun. So I didn't really feel the pressure at all. And even when I played them professionally, um, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, you're disappointed, you lose. But um, that's not the only reason why I played was to win because, you know, you'd stop playing pretty quickly if that was the case. (laughs) Yeah, so no, I I didn't really find find too much pressure um, sort of through those teenage years. You're a pretty relaxed individual. By the sounds, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, probably just getting it from my parents. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm pretty relaxed, and yeah, and like I said, just yeah, it didn't really seem to have such too much pressure on on me when I played, which was good. But we, you know, we didn't really have social media back then, and people making comments about performances and things like that. So, well, I definitely played in a different era to to now. Um, yeah, which I think sort of made made it made me more relaxed. Yeah, made a little bit more relaxed environment to play sport than it is probably now. Shelley, one of the things I, I read up on is that you you realised that you weren't really a big fan of team sports for whatever reason. That you felt that um, <laughs> you had destiny was in your own hands. I, I remember reading that if you played an individual sport. However, you did, did succeed at uh, double squash, and I can't imagine playing double squash in that 
confined court space. So, <laughs> you know, but too fast, man. Have you seen double squash? It is oh. so ridiculously fast. Grant. I don't know where you'd stand. Uh, you'd get in the way all the time. Uh, obstruction. Yeah. Uh, but how did you enjoy? Obviously, the the side of playing squash by yourself. Uh, that you know, single sort of sport. Uh, but then also doubles. What was the difference? Um, yeah, so I sort of doubles came, was quite late in my career. Um, like I never played played doubles when I was a junior really coming through. It wasn't until it was introduced to the Commonwealth Games in 1996. And then I think I went to the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 2002 was when I first played doubles sort of internationally. Um, the court is bigger. So, um, which makes a difference. It's, yeah, it's not, not so confined, I guess, than, you know, four people on a singles court. So, um, it was just, I had really good doubles partners, actually, when I played. I played with Glenn Wilson in the mix, and he, he um, sort of won a gold medal with Leilani Joyce um, at the Commonwealth Games before I played with him. So, I was lucky to have really good partners. Then I went on to play with Tamsin Levy, who I played all through my junior and senior career as well. So, I think, um, yeah, I just gelled with my partners, really. Like I said, I was quite relaxed. Um, but, yeah, yeah, a lot different to individuals. It was actually quite nice to have someone out there on the court with, with me. And I could sort of say, yours, yours, or mine, mine. Um, and just, yeah, um, yeah, that was quite good. But um, when I was sort of younger, I tried to play netball. But there was always a clash with netball and squash in the weekends. So then, obviously, I, I chose squash. So, um, yeah. Thing with individually, it was just up to me really train whenever I want, organize my own games, and have to rely on anyone else really to sort of um, play. Um, yeah, the sport that I love. So I think that's how I, why I gravit- gravitated more to squash than, than netball when I was younger. So it sounds like the club, the Kaitaia club, was probably the most instrumental in your, your love of the sport. But can you uh, put your finger on who was? probably the most motivating person for you behind your career and someone that um, either you admired or someone that really pushed you to be the best you could possibly be um, in squash? Um, you know, I just grew up watching Susan DeVoy, Dame Susan DeVoy. Um, yeah. I used to video, video, like in the old days. Oh, video how tape. good. <laughs> and then, um, you know, then put a video in, or VCR, I think it was, and just watch it like, you know, I don't know, a hundred times I probably watched you play um, back then, just replay, the, you know, the whole time. So that was pretty amazing, you know, watching her play. Um, but Did you try to copy her watched... as a player? Oh, no, not really, because she was so good. You know, I never thought. Yeah. Um, I, I probably, like, she had a really amazing backhand drop, which everyone, obviously, everyone spoke about and knew about, but yeah. my short game really wasn't very good, and I could never really drop Yeah, that. okay, fair enough. I get you. Yeah, yeah, I get you. It's like, you'd be stupid to try and imitate that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it sort of hit the ball of the back, and then she just put an amazing drop. So, no, it was just more just, I don't know what gravitated me towards. I guess she was just winning all the time, and, and, and winning. I loved the game at the time. So, um, uh, yeah, but also, yeah, we had... Yeah, like I said, we had New Zealand representatives performing at the Kaitai Squash Club, so we always sort of, and we had really popular sort of tournaments too. So Dame Susan used to come up to our Kaitai tournament, Summer Open. Um, yeah, so, and we had the New Zealand Nationals in Kaitai, I remember when I was maybe about 10. Um, you know, so all those, all those things were kind of quite instrumental to me while I was growing up. Um, Louise Rogers, she represented New Zealand before me, then she came back to um, Kaitaia and she coached us 
and she was actually pregnant at the time and nine months pregnant and actually coaching us on the court, <laughs> um, you know, feeding us balls. And that was every day. And, you know, for, for, for no, no money or anything like that, just because she loved to help us. So um, just having that kind of support, yeah, was really, yeah, I look back and, yeah, good memories for me. Tell us about the contest, being out there, you know, taking on some of the very best uh, single squash players in the world because, you know, it's a... It's a tight confine. The ball's pinging around. You're moving around left, right, forward, back. Bit of contact. Sweating on each other. Probably, um, you know, saying a few words. You know, how hot and heated does it get inside there? You know, it'd be sensory overload, would it not? Oh, yeah. You sort of just... There's not really much interaction between your players unless you... Um, there's probably more interaction with the referee, with anything. Unless you're trying to wind your opponent up a little bit, you might kind of give them a bit of a nudge or block here and there, which was not really kind of my style. I was, yeah, I sort of just kept to myself a lot when I played. I didn't really sort of interact too much. So, but yeah, I sort of, I don't know. It's just really intense. It's, you know, you're just on there just giving it everything. Um, yeah, it's hard to remember really, because I played professionally for about 10 years. Um yeah, it's just really competitive, hard, you know, really hard. Sometimes yeah. you had your off days and you had no idea, you know, why. You know, why it just wasn't working or anything like, like that. So, you know, preparation was a really big thing for me. I just made sure I could do everything I could basically to try and perform. So, um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's a long game. I still play now. And I sort of try and play like how I used to, which is not very good at all. <laughs> yeah, very badly. But, um, yeah, I, I think I still get that adrenaline rush, definitely, from playing now than, oh. yeah, the same as what I used to get. So, Fantastic. Um, your dad was a firefighter. He must have given you the mental aptitude and uh, tell you a few <laughs> things. Like, I, I, I know I do with my kids. I get them in the car and they can't go anywhere. And that's when I generally tell them what I think about how they should approach things and they can't run away or they'll roll their eyes. Um, but you must have got a lot yeah. from your dad in terms of uh, his his vocation. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, yeah, the fire brigade was definitely my, my dad's life and our life as well. Um, up there, they used to have so many calls and I used to remember him in the middle of the night, you know, going, going to a cause all the time. Um, and that was a big part of our life as well. I, I just think that um, yeah, that volunteer volunteerism side of things, my dad, that definitely rubbed off to me probably more so now in my life. <laughs> um, you know, squash club captain, helping at the school as much as I can and really trying to give back to the sport as much as I can. Um, so I, I think that's where I think my dad's influence of being involved in the fire service has sort of rubbed off on me more so than... Um, you know, when I was younger and him going to fires and stuff like that. I probably didn't actually realise um, the uh, sort of the trauma, I guess, that my dad was going through going to sit with some of those fire calls and accidents and some of the stuff he used to see. Yeah. I was probably too busy at squash and do my own thing or going to school, or whatever. So, But he probably had that really well um, from us yeah. too. So, um, yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, and gave you great context, I guess. You know, losing a squash game is, um, you know, no, nowhere near as bad as uh, some of the things he would have seen over the, uh, over the years, for sure. Uh, what I'm amazed when we speak to our legends here, Shelley Kitchen is with us, we talk about her, her great squash career, is how sort of blasé a number of our legends are about what they've achieved in the past and how 
actually how bad their memory is of, of some of, of their, uh, you know, more headline-grabbing acts. So, you know, you've picked up Commonwealth medals, you've World Team Championships, World Doubles Championship medals, a host of national titles. Are there any performances or wins or losses even that, that stand out beyond the rest? Um, yeah, definitely for me, um, the Commonwealth Games in 2006 in, in Melbourne. So um, I got bronze, picked up a bronze in a single. So I beat Nicole Davis for the third, fourth playoff. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd, I'd sort of come out come away with a medal in a single. I trained, I trained quite hard for it, but the competition was just really strong. And I sort of sacrificed and maybe it's sort of four to six tournaments overseas just to prepare for the Commonwealth Games. So, but even though I'd done all the training and been at home the whole time with my team, you know, they were still, you know, pretty amazing. And Nicole was probably, possibly number one in the world at the time. So when I went into that bronze medal match, I was like, oh, you know, you know, I hope I get some points. It'd be cool if I get a game, <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, being at the Commonwealth Games, you just raise your level because the team around you, it's not just your, your family and friends watching. It's actually the, the bigger team and, you know, the whole of New Zealand watching you. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that was really amazing. Um, another one was I beat Nicole David again another time at the World Champs when I think she was world champion maybe the year before. And my parents were there. So they, they um, went to the World Cup in 2007 to France. And that's when New Zealand sort of had their shock, the All Blacks had their shock exit, I think. Um, 2007. Yeah, 2007, is that right? The World Cup. Yeah, so Nicole had won. Nicole, yeah, Nicole had won the World Championships the two prior years. And, and for those who don't know the sport, she only went on to win six more World Championships. So Nicole David was kind of, you know, the business. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing. I lost to her like, I don't know, 13 times before I finally beat it. But my parents were there in France watching me. And that was just really amazing because usually it's just one other friend of like on the tour watching me, no coaches. You know, but they were there and I was so disappointed for them because I've been on this um, trip to watch the All Blacks at the World Cup and obviously they lost and they were disappointed and I was kind of a bit sad about that. Um, but then they came to Spain to watch me play and I yeah, beat Nicole David when I was there. So probably had, yeah, my biggest wins really when my parents and my family were with me. Um, oh, so it's awesome. a bit of a shame they couldn't travel with me a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or Shelley, we, we actually, we're asking our listeners at the moment just, um, you know, with the, the sad passing of uh, um, Sir uh, Murray Halberg, um, we're mm. asking them, who would they love to spend a dinner with, either living or deceased sports person? Do you have that person in your mind? Oh, yeah, I thought... It's I a thought tough one to Sir answer Hel- straight away, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's really hard. I thought about Sir Murray Halberg to um, this, well, when he passed, because I've just been putting in some nominations because I work for Squash New Zealand. I'm a HC yeah. manager for Squash New Zealand. So we just put in our Halberg nominations for Paul Cole and Joel King for, for next year. So, yeah, sort of, yeah, sort of been doing that all, all this week. And, yeah, it's, it's really sad. Yeah, I, I found it really sad, yeah, of hearing of him passing. Um, but for me, oh, jeez. Oh. It's a tough one, oh, isn't no, it? It really is really... a tough one. Oh, it is really tough. Oh, jeez. I might have to park that. That's all right. You you, you don't have to answer it. Tell me what you can do as we wrap this up. um, We wanted to get into what you are doing currently now and perfect segue. You've brought it up yourself. Still heavily involved in the sport. 
at the pointy end. We are seeing a, a really fabulous run um, from our, our leading uh, squash players. You know, for, to those who don't know the sport in and out, try to give some context, you know, what we are seeing from, from our number one players <laughs> at the moment, you think? Yeah, they're doing amazing well. At, um, Paul Cole, he, he was world number one in March this year um, for, for, for a couple of months and the first men's world number one that we've had for forever. Um, so that was really amazing. He's won, he's won the British Open two years in a row now. He won our first squash Commonwealth gold gold medal in the singles. Um, and then, of course, we've got Joel King, who's been at the top of the top of the game in squash in New Zealand and the world for about 10 years now. And, um, yeah, just really just flying the flag for us in squash in New Zealand. And we had the New Zealand Open, which is the first time we've had for 30 years in Tauranga, about three weeks ago, and they both come back for it, and we and oh yeah, it was just amazing. It's, we've got a lot more coverage now, which is great, great for squash. <laughs> um, we've got seven emerging pros overseas as well touring, so so they've come through COVID. Um, they've kept playing, which has been awesome. They were stuck in New Zealand for you know two years, but we managed to sort of keep them going with our domestic tournament scene, and now we've got eight players overseas playing. So. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we're really happy with where the sport is at right now in New Zealand and overseas. Shelley, one of the things, the toughest things at the moment is sports competing with other sports. You know, we've seen a drop-off in rugby um, and cricket, the big sports. Um, indoor, indoor sports uh, like basketball are becoming increasingly popular. Um, do you find the numbers in squash... Um, you know, A, what are you doing to increase those numbers? And B, what are the numbers like? Are there a lot of young kids taking up the game? Um, our numbers, um, we've got a really good uh, sort of, well, we've got a club system over here in, in New Zealand. So our numbers are up 10% in the past two years. But that's oh, not wow. taking into consideration the population growth. So we're probably maybe 5% up, which is really, really good. And I think the profile of squash with Paul and Joel doing so well has definitely helped doing well at the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, doing well in the professional circle, being in the media a little bit more, being on TV. You know, I, I really think it does make a difference. And it's probably a lot of people coming back to the game that possibly paid 20 or 30 years ago coming back to the game or introducing their children or grandchildren to the game as well. Um, yeah, so, so we're up, up a little bit. We're always, of course, looking for more participation opportunities. We have yeah. dropped a little bit in female um, youth, youth especially female, so we're going to, it's a priority for ours in the next couple of years. We've got a sort of junior program uh, group together and just trying to take, yeah, just get, make more of the youth aware of squash. A lot of people don't even know what squash is, unfortunately, the young kids. <laughs> um, they think it's kind of a form of tennis or it's sort of, oh, I just actually don't know what it is. So we want to try and take, um, yeah, the sport to schools and also make, make use of all the clubs that we have around New Zealand. We've got 190 clubs in New Zealand, um, you know, so make use of those clubs that are next near schools, like walking distance from schools and trying to connect the schools and, and the clubs a little bit more. Um, but then you need vibrant clubs for that as well and you need good coaches and you need volunteers and clubs. So, and a lot of people are quite time-pressed at the moment. So, yeah, it's a bit of... It, it's tough, like other sports as well. But, um, yeah, we just have to keep going. We just want to keep our sport alive and, and people just playing the game because it is fun. It is fun to play. 
Well, Shelley, thanks so much for dropping by, sharing, shedding some light on your own career, what's happening in the sport at the moment. Good luck for the next chapter. Uh, it's been really enjoyable having you on the, the program. Thanks so much, and good luck for the teenage years. If they go to balls at age 10, you've got, you've got trouble ahead. <laughs> thanks a lot, Shelley. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Thank you. Shelly Kitchen joining us on the program. Uh, great to get to her uh, insights uh, into her own career and what's happening with squash. Part of our Saturday session legend segment in association with Somerset. Think new friends, new laughs, and a new home. Think Somerset Retirement Villages, somerset.co.nz. Back after this short break. 13 minutes away from 12 o'clock. Your phone's being peppered, isn't it, Grant? Your phone's being peppered. You had a very interesting question you threw out a little bit earlier. I'd love to hear some of your responses. Uh, people have got back to you on uh, your Instagram feed with regard to... You're not even reading it, mate. You've you got the attention span of a three-year-old on YouTube, haven't you? I do. Um, we just got an interesting one. Joey Chestnut, the competitive hot dog-eating champion. What was the question again? Remind the audience. So the question was... Who would, uh, which sports person, living or deceased, would you love to have dinner with? Um, and I asked them to text in, or just on my gram, we've got a Brenda McCullum, we've got anyone but Grant Elliott. Oh, Sir Peter. that's a bit harsh. That's all right. So you got my message. Sir Peter Blake, Trent Bolt, we've got Colin de Grandholm. <laughs> One or two wanted to have dinner with me. Well, no, I'd, I'd like to have dinner with Colin. Colin. See, I said the big house because then I'd actually hear him talk. Oh, well, the, would you though? Rather than the three word <laughs> answers he's given to the press over his, his career. <laughs> he's actually a great man. Yeah, I know. Played with him and I've Birmingham. heard. I've heard. He's got a big house. He's got a big house. Colin to Grand Home. Yeah. He's got a big so, house. So uh, get your nominations coming through on uh, double eight, double three. Uh, the one athlete, past, present, alive or dead, throughout the history of the world. Who would you like to uh, have to dinner, and why? I, th- I think the uh, a big part of that is why. Well, no, I could say Muhammad Ali, and it's pretty obvious why. Yeah, um, but I'm sure there's some um, you know fascinating people out there uh, who are you, know, you have a reason uh, to be attached to as an individual. So double eight, double three. We'll take a short break. On the other side, our first workhorse of the week in association with Midas Agritise. Who has been working hard to entertain our sports fans? Uh, we'll just share our first round of awards up after this. Today says you're on it. He's Elliot on McCarty. Uh, the one athlete, alive or dead, you want to invite to dinner. We'll have for dinner. Double eight, double three. Grant wants your nominations. He's been peppered on Instagram. Uh, send us a text if you don't have the gram, as Grant would say. Double eight, double three. Time for our Midas Agritise first uh, round of awards. Um... For our workhorse of the week, who's been working the lands to entertain us as sports fans during the week? Midas Agritise, the choice of leading manufacturers. Midas Agritise, European quality, made affordable. Uh, I'm going to start with a nomination and then a non-nomination. Oh, normally you go the other way around. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to start positively and you know finish with a, a backhanded compliment, maybe. Grant, I know we've laughed that it is a road, but my Midas Agritise workhorse of the week is the English batting. I'm sorry, but in 101 overs to score 657, six ball overs, this ain't 1927 we're talking about, is extraordinary. Zach Crawley, 122 off 111. Uh, ben Duckett, 107 off 110. These aren't one-day scores. 108 off 104 for Ollie Pope. Joe Root, terribly out of form, 23 off 31. <laughs> uh, Harry Brook, 153 off 116 balls. Ben Stokes playing... A white ball innings. Thought he gave given up the white ball game, Grant. 41 off 18. Incredible. 567. Um, all out and 101 overs. 
And uh, my non-nomination, I wanted to be really cruel to Zahid Mamou, but I know he's had a pretty bad uh, couple of days. Breaking 200. He, oh. broke, he broke the double ton. 33 overs, four for 235. Wow. That... I might leave him alone and go, my non-nomination is the English bowlers, who then backed up their uh, batting uh, by not picking up a wicket. <laughs> and 181 runs on the board. Well, you know, a funny story about um, Mahmoud who, who went for 200. Um, I played at uh, Queen's, uh, Queen's Park, I think it was called. It's no longer now in Christchurch. QE2 Oval, that's what it was called. Yes. And um, I bowled 43 overs, and it was one of the bowlers got injured, so we all ended up just bowling on this real Raul Pindi road. And it was just tough going. And we when they hit me for a hundred, I took my boot off and I raised my boot. <laughs> I'd had enough. I got something like five, six hundred. Incredible. That is fantastic. Uh, so well done to the English uh, batsmen. Uh, less so to the English bowlers. Uh, that's my nomination for Workhorse of the Week. Grant will have his in the next hour. We'll talk to the World Cup baby, you and McCabe, about the football World Cup because we've eliminated 32, 16 teams. We've got 16 alive. Into the round of 16, he'll join us in the next hour as well. We do percussion too. <laughs> I'm doing percussion. Into the afternoon, we now turn. It's 12 o'clock. Happy afternoon, everyone. Saturday session, final hour of the show. Daniel McCarty, Grant Elliott, Ben Francis. All with you through to 1 o'clock. Uh, coming up in about six minutes' time, we're going to cross to uh, Pukekohe for race number one. We've also got race number two from Pukekohe at about uh, 12.40, if I'm not mistaken. World Cup baby's going to join us. You're McCabe, Mr. Football World Cup superfan and author about his fandom of uh, the Football World Cup to talk about the uh, stage of the tournament we're now at, the round of 16. We've been asking you uh, two questions today. Uh, I can't pick a team to get through to a World Cup final on both sides of the draw, so help me out. Is there one team you're absolutely sure about that will make it to a World Cup final on December 19th? Double eight, double three. And the second question was, Grant Elliott? Who would you want to have dinner with? Which sports star, deceased or living, would you like to have um, dinner with? We've had multiple uh, answers. We've had Colin de Grandhomme. We've had Sir Peter Blake. We've had Brendan McCullum. Uh, God, Zaid here has answered both those questions in one. I love that, Zaid. That is foresight. Brilliant. That is uh, double eight, double three. Send his message to get amongst it. Love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, hi, team. Uh, Zaid here. I reckon it would be cool to have dinner with Tyson Fury. Wouldn't be a dull dinner. Would, it? Would you want to fire him up? Well, you want to get him a little you'd bit. You poke angry. the bear a little yeah, bit. You'd, you'd have to poke him. You'd want to poke the bear a little bit just to see. Um, that would be fun. I, I can understand where you're coming from. And he also writes, and I think France can win the World Cup with Kylian Mbappe. I think they've got a very good chance. Thank you very much, Zay. Do appreciate that. Um, uh, great to hear your thoughts on that. So, double eight, double three, uh, football fans, here's your ta- chance to shine. Uh, tell us, convince Grant and I, uh, name. One team who'll make a World Cup. And uh, Grant um, has thrown this question out. He's getting lots of reaction on Instagram. If there's one athlete, past or present, alive or dead, uh, that you would love to sit down, have dinner with, and you can talk about anything you want, anything you want, let us know, Double eight, double three. Right at the top of the hour, though, uh, let's get to the latest in sports headlines. Uh, Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones. You know, the guy I told you about four weeks ago would probably get sacked at the end of the year because England's not very good at rugby. Yeah. And then, then went on and lost to... South Africa last week, didn't Yeah. They? Has he been sacked? Who did I tell you? 
we're going to beat them last week in yeah, our you sporting tips. You did. Our sporting tips that you should run towards yeah. at the moment. Well, Eddie Jones will learn if he um, is to continue as English uh, head coach next week, apparently, with the uh, RFU review into a dismal autumn set to conclude early next week. While Jones and the RFU have long been committed to his tenure finishing after the Rugby World Cup next year, uh, England's form has forced a rapid uh, reappraisal of strategy. What's Razor doing next year? I, I do wonder. Anyway, despite a, a plucky series victory, over, never never like to see that in a story. A plucky, a plucky series victory over England 2022 has been underwhelming for Jones and his team. They've won five of 13 matches. That's not particularly good. Ronan O'Gara has ruled him out, ruled himself out of contention, leaving Warren Gatlin to be the front runner with um, Razor also in the mix apparently. Uh, FIFA World Cup updates, Ronaldo and Portugal, we knew they were through. Who was going to come out of their group alongside them? Well, it was a late goal to South Korea to beat Ronaldo's, yeah, it is Ronaldo's Portugal, I think that's officially what you call it, Ronaldo's <laughs> Portugal. Two goals to one, it came in added time, South Korea through, uh, South Korea would take on Brazil, Brazil topping their group, but only just, they lost this morning to Cameroon by one goal to nil, uh, not enough for Cameroon to get uh, out of the group because, uh, Switzerland beats uh, Serbia in a wild game, three games to two. So those two sides have progressed out of Group G. And the White Ferns have opened their T20 International Series against Bangladesh with a record victory. has led to whose uh, career best bowling figures inspired a 132-run victory in Christchurch, defending just 164. To who took uh, figures of four for six from four overs, backed up by three from eight from Haley Jensen, as Bangladesh imploded to be all out for 32. Uh, quite an embarrassing uh, performance by Bangladesh, to whose figures are the second best return for the White Fins in the shortest form, only betted by wife Amy Satterthwaite. You know, got six for seventeen against England in two thousand and seven. So you know, the first ball of her her uh, last over, she got a healthy edge to Maddie Green, the keeper for her fifer, who just who dropped no. a clanger. Yeah, she clanged no. it. It's uh, there's nothing worse than catching catch. Or, sorry. Dropping a ball on a milestone. Yeah. I've dropped a hat-trick ball before. No! Off who? Yeah. A guy called Wayne Kidwell. Should we call him and, and you can apologize? Oh, I, do, I still feel awful about it because he loaded the slip cord and there was seven of us giggling. And someone said, I hope it doesn't come to me. And we were all having a, a little bit of a laugh at the the bizarre moment of if it did come to you and it came to me. And was, it I, a, was it a goober in the slips? No, no, okay, no it was the guy had a... Good go at it, yeah. and it just rocketed to me at second or third slip, and yeah, it just it went straight in, straight out. The hands were just ha- so hard. And how did he it. cope? And how did he cope? Hands on knees, yeah. you know, just quiet moment of anguish, and I felt terrible. I still feel terrible. I, I, I can see it in your eyes, mate. It's you so actually, bad. You, you got such a nice heart grant about you. See, this is the third nice thing I've said to you mm. in the history of the program. Um, Have you heard of someone called Terry Fox? That doesn't ring a bell. I was, I, I'd taken my, you know, I was talking about thinking about hat tricks. Yours was at a pretty high level. I was going to bore you with my story about when a player umpire denied me of a hat trick. Oh, tell me. Oh, two LBWs bang in front. The third was even plumber, and he said no. And then the end of the over, he said, "I can't give three, mate." Can I? <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I went, fair <laughs> you enough. You can. I went, fair enough. Oh. Well, player umpire, you know, he was in his team. Yeah. He wouldn't been, it would have been ostracised from his team. <laughs> so quickly, I, th- I think we're going to head to Pukeko rates number one in just a moment. Have you got enough time to tell this? Yeah, oh, so someone wants to have dinner with Terry Fox, who ran the length of Canada on one leg. What? Answer. Yeah. Now I remember that story. Not the name. I- I've heard of um, that. Ran the length of Canada. With Canada's leg. quite a large country for those who fail geography. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure he had a prosthetic leg as well. I'm going to read up on that one. I'm going to find out who Terry Fox is. All right, they're in the uh, in the gates. Pukakai, race number one, ready to jump. We head there now. Seven nine six in order. Five dollars for the win. Dollar eighty for the place. Four fifty and one sixty four places. Second and third, respectively. Hope I was paying attention. We got those right. No, Ben Francis actually told me in my ear. Producer extraordinaire, Grant Elliott, alongside me, Daniel McCarty. Uh, Graham writes, Daniel and Grant, dinner with Sir Donald Bradman. His views oh. of cricket in the 21st century would surely be compelling. Well, yeah, I, I would love to find out from Sir Don how true it was that there was no third man when he played, and he loved hitting it down there. I don't know if that's... Because it wasn't in the MCC manual, right. third man. Was there uh, really tears in your eyes when you faced Derek Hollies in your last test innings? Uh, so many other questions. Did Keith Miller really tell you to F off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. it's not bad, Graham. He's a bit of a polarising bloke in certain uh, respects. Was Sir Don, uh, but an incredible batsman for sure. Keep your nominations uh, coming through, double eight, double three, as to who uh, you'd love to have uh, dinner with, past or present, alive or dead, as far as uh, great sporting athletes you'd like to pick their brain. Um, and we just want to know one team you're absolutely certain of, of making it through to the final. No one's answering this question, because I don't think anyone is certain. That sums up the Football World Cup. Speaking of which, we're going to catch up with, what, a, a World Cup compulsive super fan, author. Um, and obsessive. Uh, he is an obsessive. I think he's watched every single World Cup game from 1994 onwards. <laughs> it's incredible. Ewan McCabe, the one and only, the World Cup baby, uh, will join us after this break. Great song choice, Ben Francis. Our theme tune on the Saturday session of the World Cup. You're just going to break my wife's heart. My wife threw Ecuador in two different office sweeps, mate. <laughs> Unlucky. Yeah. And then after two games, they were looking like the best team in Group A <laughs> and then conspired to lose and got eliminated. It was just a sign of what was to come in the final Group uh, games. Extraordinary string of games over a number of days. Um, doof, doof, some Euro trash here. Fantastic. Uh, one man has been watching it all. I mean, at all, uh, joins us now. Uh, football World Cup compulsive. I, he can speak for himself, but I'm pretty sure he fell in love with the Football World Cup, Argentina, 1978. Um, and here's an incredible uh, string, Grant. One thing I'm certain of, no one has watched more consecutive World Cup games than our next guest, and no one has probably watched more bad performances uh, than, from the Wellington Firebirds uh, than from our next fan, who's generally uh, perched in the RA Vance. And from the same seat. I've walked yeah. past him many times yeah. on that same seat. It's Ewan McCabe, the World Cup baby, author and World Cup superfan. Ewan, how are you? Are you surviving halfway through a World Cup? Afternoon, Ewan. Hello, Grant. Um, I'm barely surviving. Um, this has been very rigorous, I must say. 11 straight nights of four games a night, so that's 44 games in 11 days. And um, I'm looking forward to the next tournament because apparently there's going to be 80 games at the next World Cup. So I'll have to consider my future, I think, in the next four years, a possible semi-retirement maybe. Um, but I'm up, wow. to, um, 
I'm up to 491 now, so consecutive games I've watched. So the eight round of 16 matches and then the first quarter final will be number 500. So uh, I might be hanging up my bat at some stage, I think. Yeah. We, we, this streak <laughs> goes back to 94, much. right? It's 1994. If I got uh, that right, I said it earlier in the show. I'm pretty sure it was 94 onwards. It started it in Italy in 1990. I went to the World Cup in Italy in 1990, and um, I was in the stadium in Rome uh, preparing for Italy's quarterfinal against the Republic of Ireland. And up on the big screen, they had the penalty shootout between Argentina and Yugoslavia when the great Diego Maradona kind of popped his penalty straight at the Yugoslav keeper. Um, and I'd missed the Brazil-Argentina game because I'd been on a bus coming north from Naples and I just decided at that point, well, it's great to go to a World Cup, but the problem when you go to a World Cup, unless you're Infantino, who seems to pop up at every match, uh, if you go if you go to a World Cup, you're going to miss games. So I decided I just can't miss games. So uh, from 1994 USA onwards, um, I've watched every game at every tournament. Um, it's just the kind of thing you do um, if you haven't got a life. Brilliant. I think it's magnificent. Like you haven't. know that. Oh, <laughs> that was going to be my question, Ewan, is that you actually didn't think about going to Qatar. But, I mean, surely you've got to end the streak with going to a World Cup, missing a few. I reckon number 1,000 should be at, should be at a, a venue. Oh, I'll be dead by then, Daniel. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I might consider, you know, the USA, Mexico, Canada, next oh. World Cup. Um, I'll get past the 500 here and then maybe decide... Um, I'll actually go go to the tournament because that will be fantastic. The last World brilliant. Cup hosted in the United States was a magnificent tournament, um, brilliantly supported by the Americans. And with Canada and Mexico tacked on in four years, that should be a fantastic tournament. So who knows? But look, these late nights, um, four, four games every night. I mean, in the past, it's normally been three. They've ramped it up to four. It's re- it is tough going. But having said that, the football has just been tremendous. I mean, people ask me, do you ever fall asleep? But I think the more pertinent question is, how can you sleep uh, with the kind of football that we've been watching in the last um, 12 days or so? Yeah, Ewan, um, before we get on to the tournament itself, because, yeah, it has been absolutely fantastic, and I don't think anyone's been able to pick what's, what's happened. But are you going to hand the mantle over to someone? to take over your legacy of, of watching every World Cup game? Um, I haven't got anyone in mind. Maybe you, Grant. Um, you're looking for something to do in life, aren't you? Um, <laughs> He's, he doesn't get... have the attention span for it, mate. He does, he'll be th- <laughs> oh, there's too much Instagramming. And... <laughs> well, you know, no, well, there must be someone that's doing one. this same thing as you, you, and that's watching this football, and maybe not as intensely as you 491 are. 491 games. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And you get, to, you get to that 500th game, I think that you need to find someone who says, right, and you hand it over. He needs to find someone. Live right. game in USA, you hand over the mantle, right, He needs over to find to you. someone. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And Ewan has a rule. You can't really ask him of how does the, the tournament rate until at least two or three months after a tournament. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, yeah. I've got to, I've got to you know, let the whole tournament absorb itself into my thinking before I can make a, a decision. And also, one thing that really annoys me, and I know 
because I've worked with Daniel before around World Cups, he knows this. You do not ask me who's going to win. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, the question no. that everybody asks me because A, I don't know, and B, I don't want to know because I don't want the tournament to end. It's about the journey, not the destination. And so when it comes to decide who the world champion is, it's quite a depressing day for me because it means I've got another four years yeah. to wait for the next World Cup. Yeah, and I feel like that today because I, I, I finished my involvement at the, the World Cup today and I felt a bit flat when Grant walked into the studio. You're like, you okay? And I'm like, no, I commentated my last game today. So it's, I, I, I share some similarity with you and today. But I would like to know, you know, how, you know throw me some words to describe what you have seen over these last group games. It's been extraordinary drama. So many twists and turns, whether it was Japan and Costa Rica of all countries for that 10-minute, maybe a 5-10 minute slice where Germany and Spain were going to get knocked out of the group stage. How do you describe what you've seen maybe over the last few days as we finally got it down to 16? I think the, the word I choose is unbelievable. Um, it's just been incredible, and um, I love. I watched the Costa Rica Germany game, and I just love the commentator. He said, um, uh, "He said if a spaceship landed in the centre circle now, um, nobody'd bat an eyelid, because it was just uh, at, at that point that was when Costa Rica, uh, you know, were qualifying with Japan, and Germany and Spain were on their way out, uh, and you look at that group." When it came out, you know, that Group E, you looked at it, it was the group that kind of everyone salivated over because it had two of the giants of the game in it, and you kind of felt for Japan and Costa Rica. But <laughs> incredible, isn't it, that Japan have topped the group and Germany are going home. Uh, and just it just carried on. I think we, we had the drama of South Korea again this morning. And we almost got it in the last round of matches too. Um, you know, if Switzerland had got an extra goal or Serbia got a goal, it would have changed the mechanics of that group totally. Um, it's just been phenomenal. I mean, there is this is the first World Cup since 1994 that uh, there hasn't been one team that have won all three of their games. Uh, and in 1994, there were only six groups. And so this is the first eight-group World Cup where nobody's got a 100% record. And I think that really encapsulates the tournament. Nobody's been able to really get a grip on things and, and show their class. There have been glimpses of class by the expected um, suspects. Teams like Spain and Brazil have given us glimpses. Um, but nobody's really, uh, in even England as well, you know, they had that very flat performance against the United States. So nobody's really got a grip on things. So it just leaves the whole thing up in the air in terms of what's going to happen now, you know, because we now go into genuine knockout football. We've had knockout football effectively uh, for the last uh, three or four nights, but it's genuine knockout stuff, and nobody's got a clue what's going to happen, really, because the big guns are all wobbling a little bit, and you've got sides like Morocco and Japan, and even South Korea, Australia, you know, they could bowl somebody else uh, at some point, so this could just carry on, and I hope it does. One of the great things yeah. for me about the World Cup is I'm a, a neutral, so I can just enjoy. I hate it when anybody's knocked out because it's so sad. I was just felt so much for Uruguay this morning because they're one of my favourites. But as Daniel and I, I'm a big Italian fan, so 
the Italians, of course, didn't qualify, so I don't have to worry about it. So it's just about sitting back and enjoying it for me and, and it's turned up, turned up trumps in that respect. Uh, Ewan, uh, what does this tell us about world football? Does it mean that, you know, it's not like test cricket where there's only three nations that are head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, does it mean that everyone's getting closer to, um, you know, I guess the, the superpowers of football when you see someone like Germany getting knocked out? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think the gap's been closing for probably the last 20 years or so. We had a World Cup in 2002 where uh, teams like South Korea and Japan and the United States all shone. And that was a bit of a wake-up call because the big guns had dominated. Um, And in the last 20 years, that gap's continued to close. And I think you've just got to look at at the makeup of the last 16 uh, eight European sides, you kind of expect that. Uh, but just two from South America and three from Asia. I mean, what kind of odds would you have got three Asian teams, Japan, South Korea mm. and Australia? What odds would you have got on more Asian teams in the last uh, 16 than South American sides? You've got the United States there from the North American uh, Confederation. You've got two African sides. So you've got a real mixture there. I think Mm. we need to just draw a breath here and I think one of the big guns will still come through. We've only had, you know, nine world champions in the history of the World Cup and even though the likes of Italy, Germany, Uruguay have all gone, uh, I think that, you know, France, Brazil, Argentina and England are still in Spain. They're kind of the big five and they've all been world champions before and there is, you know, I would still fancy one of them to come through in the end, but it's this. Uh, the, 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 there's no question. The gaps are closing. Hold on, Grant. I have a sneaking suspicion you were just about to ask you and a question about who's going to win a game. He told you you don't you don't talk to him about who's going to win games or win the tournament itself. You ask questions like this. You and what what manager or player has won your heart with their antics, their shithousery, whatever it might be, uh, throughout the group stage of this tournament. Uh, well, I think the Saudi Arabian goalkeeper who took out his defender. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was just that. That was one of the great moments of the World Cup. But look, my absolute <laughs> hero of this World Cup is Paulo Bento, the um, Portuguese coach of South Korea. I don't know if you saw this morning, but um, he got a red card the other day, which meant he had to sit in the stand uh, for this morning's game, and he so actually. Good got told off by the spectators around him because he was standing up all the time. Um, you know, they were telling him to sit down. And this, this, this guy, there's, there's, always a, there's always a complete nutter, uh, a manager who's a complete nutter, and this guy, Paolo Bento of South Korea, um, he's the nutter. And I think that it's just fantastic South Korea got through in the end because it means we're going to see more of him. He's going to be back down on the bench um, for their match against Brazil. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, in terms of players, um, uh, there's been um, the, the the ball chap from Morocco, um, uh, sorry, from Tunisia, Kasri, is it? Um, yeah, Wahib Kasri, yeah. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, yeah, he's been absolutely fabulous. So always a huge smile on his face. And, of course, Bentecourt from, um, have I got his name right? No, not Bentecourt. Yeah. Uh, the the Mar- the Cameroonian striker who did the little lob against oh, Serbia, um, 
Oh, Abubakar, who got sent off Abubakar, today. Uh, taking yeah, yeah. Abubakar, who scored against Brazil. They win, takes his shirt off, Grant, and got sent off. That was the second yellow card. Just the second red card of the tournament came from a guy celebrating too much. Brilliant. Taking his shirt off. That's just brilliant, isn't it, Ewan? Oh, it's fantastic. In the World Cup, they always throw up these little treasures. treasures. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, we've got the kind of older brigade there, haven't we? Um, the last dance for the likes of Luka Modric, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi. And great to see Danny Alves out there this morning, 39 years old for Brazil. Pepe, 39 for Portugal. So it's not, a, not all a young man's sport. Um, but, you know, of the, the greats, Modric, Messi, uh, Ronaldo, who's going to come out on top? That's the big question at the end of the day. Will it be Leonardo Messi? Will he finally put to bed that thing that he hasn't won a World Cup? Yeah, he'll be on the pantheon with Diego Maradona if he can do it. Uh, Ronaldo, I think he's a little bit past his best, but the guy's still capable of producing something special. And we all, as we all know, he's a big occasion player so there might be still a little bit of magic in in his box of tricks but yeah it's it's a fabulous tournament there's always great characters at the world cup there's always passion uh there's always emotion there's always color uh and there's always controversy too great to see a bit of genuine controversy yesterday with or the day before with the ball that went out um you know the spanish that led, led to japan's second goal um, I think I don't think that VAR person will be uh, making any trips to to Germany in the next um, in the next <laughs> couple of years. So um, it's just this is just the World Cup. This is why it's the greatest sporting event in the world, and why football is the greatest sport. And also the supporters. I mean, the noise in those stadiums has just been phenomenal. Japan. One of the reasons they've progressed. Fifty thousand supporters—they <laughs> just don't let wow. up. They—they're they, making incredible noise from start to finish. Uh, of course, being an Arab World Cup, the North African countries and the Middle Eastern countries have had phenomenal support, and of course, the Argentinians are sensing something. So they've travelled in huge numbers, and they're, they're just—you the, know—the passion and the colour. That's what I love about it so much. Hey, Ewan, I'm not going to ask you who's going to win the World Cup, but what I am going to ask you, because we've got something at the end of the show, it's called, it used to be called Punts You Should Run a Mile From, but we've become really good at it because we use expert knowledge on the show. Thomas Waldrum said to us two weeks ago, he said the All Blacks versus England was going to be a draw, and that's what I picked, and it was a draw. So I want to, wow. I want to use our expert knowledge, and of the rank outsiders in the World Cup at the moment. And I say rank, so that's anyone from $31 up to Australia, $201 to one. Who do you think's got a chance there? So that's, that's Croatia, Switzerland, Japan, Morocco, USA, Senegal, Poland, South Korea, Australia. Yeah. Okay, out of those ones, I fancy Japan and Morocco because they are so well organised. Um yeah. They're, they're disciplined, they're organised, and they're brilliantly managed. So they're the two that stand out for me. That game between Morocco and Spain looks very tasty um, because I think the Spanish had real difficulty breaking down that Japanese defence. And I think they might find it's the same against Morocco. And, of course, Japan, they're the darlings of the tournament, aren't they? I mean, any neutral would just want to see them go on and on. 
I think the stars of the tournament, actually, Daniel asked me before, those Japanese substitutes, they've been running up and down that sideline when they scored those two goals against Germany and then at the end against Germany, then running up and down the sideline when they scored those goals against uh, Spain. They even got to run up the sideline twice because the the second goal went to VAR. And then they ran up up the sideline at the end of the game. I mean... Those, we, I want to see more of those Japanese substitutes celebrating, and I want to Brilliant see more stuff. of um, of of our um, of the South Korean manager too. <laughs> Mr. Bento, Mr. McCabe, thanks so much for dropping by, my friend. I know sleep is a priceless commodity for you at the moment. Go get some. You've got another uh, um, big couple of days ahead. Only two games tomorrow. It gets a little bit easier from here on in. Netherlands, USA, Argentina, Australia. For game number 492 and 93, uh, and raise your bat when you hit 500, my friend. It's uh, it's a hell of an achievement. Thank you, Ewan. Okay, thank you, Grant. I'll see you at the basin this summer. <laughs> see you there, brother. It's uh, Ewan McKay, the World Cup baby author and uh, World Cup football super fan. Yeah, super fan. If you've got a streak of watching 491 uh, World Cup games consecutively without missing them, that, that's watching the whole game, not the highlights. Not a little five-minute highlights package. Does he watch the build-up? Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Of course he does. Incredible. But to our listeners... Dating back to 1990. Just quietly there, he's said of, of the rank outsiders, Japan and Morocco, they're both at $81. Surely they can't win it all. Surely they can't win it all. We must take a break. We're going to head to Bukagoi and another race, race number two, in um, well, just a few minutes' time. Stay with us. The race that was at Bukagoi. It is very tight. Just couldn't get tighter. Because right now it's a photo for first, second, and third. First, second, and third photo. Uh, Eagle Eye Grant Elliott is uh, staring, staring like a hawk looking for prey. Have you got money on anything? Oh, number seven is just flying through there. That would be a oh, great race if number seven gets seven, up. Seven, twelve, and I just can't see the inside number. Oh, it has to be seven. Seven, twelve, and famous, famous last words, mate. Like uh, you know, the Japanese ball crossing the line yesterday against uh, has to be number seven against Spain. Just it was it ran a great race. Number seven came from the outside, three horses from the outside, and probably about at least two lengths behind just to cross that line. But my workhorse of the week, yeah, in association Lo- with the Midas Agritise, what sporting team or individual has been working the land grant to impress you? Well, last week I told you about the Japanese fans. I said, you know, they're the workhorse of the week. They were cleaning up the stands. There was photos of uh, the change room of the Japanese football players. I've seen change rooms being left, how some teams leave them behind. Just they're like, race. someone will pick it all up. But there's someone... Better. Lower than yeah. the food chain will pick up my mess. And we've we've heard Richie McCaw saying sweep the sheds. Well, the Japanese fans for me last week, but this week it'll be the Japanese players, the team. Uh, they become only the third team in World Cup history to be losing at halftime and come back to win two matches at the same tournament. Um, the last team to do that was Brazil in 1938 and then wow. West Germany in 1970. Wow. did it in memorable style. So... We just heard here that Ewan McCabe, World Cup baby, he said of all the outsiders, he fancies Morocco and Japan just because they're organized. And they, he, they're at $81. He's fallen in love with Japan, and rightly so. Uh, incredible achievement to beat uh, Germany and Spain coming from behind in both games. It's a great shout for the Midas Agritise Workhorse of the Week. You're going to finish with... No, let's, just, let's be nice. It's all about Japan. A Midas Agritise made in Europe and trusted by leading equipment manufacturers worldwide 
European quality doesn't have to break the bank. Ask for minus agritires for your equipment. Uh, on the other side of the break, um, Sporting Tits, you should run a mile from. And um, why I want to uh, have dinner with Tom Hicks. Twelve minutes away from one o'clock. Uh, Grant Elliott, uh, who would you invite to dinner? Answer your own question. Keith Miller. Keith Miller, pretty. I told the listeners early on, Keith yeah, Miller, sorry. and the reason why. I wasn't here. Um, should I repeat the reason why if no, they just tuned in? Because they've heard about Keith Miller. What a man. Uh, someone agrees with you here. Sh- uh, dinner surely with sh- uh, Shane Keith Warren. Um, it would be interesting, failing that Keith Miller. 100% not Bradman. Great player. Not sure about the person. Oh, that was uh, Unnamed texter. Um, and Jason, from the other side of the ditch, um, writes, Daniel Grant, I think Brazil will make the World Cup final. And I would like to have a meal with Ross Taylor, Robin Brook, and Stacey Jones. Oh, greedy, getting three over. Like that, Jason. Smorgasbord of guests. <laughs> who, did, uh, who did you have? You Tom t- Hicks. Tom, Tom Hicks. Hicks I would invite to dinner. Who's Tom Hicks? He won the 1904 Marathon in St. Louis. A marathon that was raced in uh, temperatures that reached 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, described by one fair official as the most difficult a human being has ever been asked to run. Wow. Um, uh, there were seven hills, varied from 100 to 300 feet uh, inclines. Brutally long ascents. Um, in many places, uh, cracked stone was strewn across the roadway, uh, creating perilous footing. The men had to constantly dodge cross-town traffic. Yes, they had to run through traffic, <laughs> delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. In fact, some competitors got attacked by dogs. Um, there were only two places where athletes could secure fresh drinking water. Um, there was also uh, massive amounts of dust in the environment, um, which uh, created um, a number of problems for people breathing. Uh, yeah, there was huge problems, including William Garcia of California nearly became the first fatality in an Olympic marathon when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had, quite, um, had sort of clogged his uh, esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. But Hicks was one of the early favourites. Now, he came under the care of a two-man support crew, uh, crew with 10 miles uh, gone. He begged for them uh, for a drink, but his team refused him a drink, didn't trust the water, oh, no. instead sponging his mouth with warm distilled water in a marathon. Mmm, this is nice, isn't it? <laughs> Seven miles from the finishes, handlers fed him a c- concoction of strychnine and egg whites, the first recorded instance of drug use in a marathon. Uh, uh, modern Olympics. Um, it's a stimulant, strychnine, in small doses. There was no um, rules around performance-enhancing drugs in those days. You know, better living via chemistry. Uh, Hicks' uh, team also carried a flask of French brandy, but decided to withhold it until they could gauge his condition. <laughs> it was after they doped him, of course. Uh, Hicks, um, you know, strychnine cursing through his blood had grown um, ashen and limp. And when he heard that uh, someone had been disqualified in front of him because he'd been bitten by a dog, that perked up his. Um, <laughs> that, that perked him up. It's in fire. Yeah, yeah, the guy leading the race was attacked by a dog. <laughs> anyway, he began to hallucinate. Beginning the finish line was still twenty miles away, and in the last m- mile, begged for someone uh, and something to eat. He then begged to lie down. He was given more brandy, or given some brandy, uh, but refused tea. They offered him a, a cup of tea. He swallowed. T- Two more egg whites um, and walked up the first of the last two hills, then jogged down the incline. Uh, swinging into the stadium, he tried to run but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. 
His trainers carried him over the line. They carried him over the line to win the Olympic marathon, holding him aloft while his feet moved back and forward. And he was declared the winner. Tom Hicks is being invited to dinner. He might not remember anything about it, but it is the single greatest race in sporting history. No doubt about it. The 1904 marathon is the greatest race for its absolute absurdity, chaos, Carnage. Why is there not a movie about this? There's a, there's a movie in there. I don't know there's why. There's rabid dogs. Tom Hicks, I can't wait to have you over for dinner. Brilliant. Well, I will give you strychnine. <laughs> and, and eggs. For egg Any way you want. Uh, my uh, sporting tips, you should run a mile from. Let's finish off. You like Tom Hicks. You think that's a good yeah, show. Uh, yeah, yeah, what a great good. race. Uh, I've got Poland beating uh, France in a penalty shootout, paying $21. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm sticking my neck out. That was my call yesterday on the Brecky show. There's always a game where someone ruins the party at a World Cup and yeah. via a penalty shootout, and Poland have been dire. That's um, what, I've also yeah. got um, Argentina going through against uh, our mates from across the ditch, but Australia to score. So Argentina to win, but both teams to score 375. What have you got, mm. Grant? Well, I can't beat that. I, I, I like long odds. I mean, I guess the only long odds I've got is if you want to listen to Ewan McCabe, I asked him for rank outsiders, Japan at $81 to win it. You might want to put a sneaky one on there, but at the moment I'm going to go with something relevant. So I believe that you've got the World Test Championships and uh, England are sitting now at sixth. They need to win test matches. Therefore... They're going to declare and make a game of it. They've got quite a bold captain and coach you might have seen in the media. You would say that they are on the aggressive side. So there will be a declaration, and I'm going to say that Pakistan's in Oh, It's at $13 at the moment. Oh. So it's not, I think it should be steeper odds than that. So a bad declaration. I sort of feel like Pakistan might get 400 and mm. then England will bat, and then declare and give them something to chase. 380 on the last day on yeah, that I don't row. know. I don't know. Hmm. Let's, let's have a look. They're losing light as well, so they will lose time in the test matches. So there's time already taken out of it. Um, so watch that with fascination. Let's see if there might be a result. The draw only gives you $1.24, and England are at 465 so Yeah, that's far too prudent. It's probably the smart play, but not the Grant Elliott way. Ben Francis in 30 <laughs> seconds or less. Do you have one for us? I do not, because yeah, I haven't had time to look. Okay, just all week. Yeah, all week. Yeah, just all week. Not enough time. No, not enough time. I've, had, I've, had, I've had, I've had to be, I've had been babysitting Grant. That's that's a lot of work. But, oh, oh, that's not, not true. He's right? not that bad, is he? Come da- here, buddy. Daniel McCarty, flatter than a rowel pindi. Wicked at the moment. Yeah, he's going to get some well-needed rest. St- I've had some strychnine and some eggs, and I'm ready to go. Let's go, baby. Get you some brandy. And just roll you down the hill home. The good oil's up next. Have great fun, team. Take it easy. See you next week.